Hey everyone, welcome to Operations, the show where we look under the hood of companies in hypergrowth. My name is Sean Ling. When we first started this show, my goal was to talk to world-class operators who had been there, done that, so that we as an audience could learn from their experiences. Now, experiences and the stories that our guests have told are great, but we're operators, so I should have realized that numbers, proven approaches that yield tangible, measurable results, that's what operators really want. Luckily for us, that's exactly what our guest today brings. That guest is Jeremy Donovan, Executive Vice President of RevOps and Strategy for Insight Partners, a venture capital firm that specializes in scaling companies. If you've ever come across a LinkedIn post that starts with, hey, salespeople, you've come across Jeremy. Prior to his role at Insight Partners, Jeremy led revenue strategy and a variety of leadership roles at SalesLoft, CB Insights, and he spent 16 years at Gartner. With all of his experience, Jeremy is well positioned to help us bring data to the conversation of what good looks like and ultimately separate the practices from the best practices. So that's exactly what we're going to do. In our conversation, Jeremy explains the methodology he used to create what he calls the revenue maturity assessment across 122 different companies. We talk about why some best practices make you a top performer and others don't. And why, of all things, Jeremy's chosen to be a student of CROs. To start, though, I asked him about his new role at Insight Partners and how he decided to approach distilling these best practices in the first place. When I was listening, for the most part, to your podcast, and I continue to listen now, I was at SalesLoft, and there we had over a billion interactions between companies and their own prospects and their own customers so that we could figure out what were the things that people might write in an email that would be correlated, right? Correlation, not causation, would be correlated with success. So I could test anything, right? I could test hi, hey, hello, and the salutation. I could test hope things are well. I could test all these things in emails and figure out whether they were correlated with success. I moved over from SalesLoft to Insight partners back in January of this year of 2022. And I felt, okay, we've got some awesome benchmarking data. We've got killer stuff around sales KPIs. We've got killer stuff around CS. We've got killer stuff around compensation and quota and so forth, right? So we had all this great stuff, but I was really looking for something that was actionable, not just for sales leadership, but also for sales managers and and salespeople. And the thing I set out to do was okay, I read a ton. I listen to podcasts almost addictively. <laughs> and I hear there's all these things that people say, here's a practice. You know, you should do this, you should do that. And it's just impossible to do everything. So how do you piece through that to find out the handful of things that I refer to them as practices that are best practice. And what I did was I culled through all your podcast, other people's podcasts, books, and so forth, and just try to figure out what are the things that people recommend across nine categories, right? Go-to-market strategy, sales comp, hiring, sales process, right? I won't list all nine, but people are welcome to kind of reach out to me on LinkedIn, and I'm happy to share the full thing here. And I've found 59 different practices, and I'm sure there are more, but whatever. A survey needs to not be super complex. So I found 59 different practices. I created this thing called a revenue maturity assessment. I sent it out to 122 companies. And I just asked people to say where they were on the maturity spectrum for each one of those practices. But then just knowing what people are doing is simply benchmark, Mm. right? Benchmark is average and benchmark is not necessarily best practice. So I then 
I included a question in the survey. And the question I had, I had to have some kind of measure of performance. So I asked, how has your company performed relative to your closest competitor over the last 12 months? And they would say, whatever, much better, somewhat better, about the same, what have you. And I know, because I read a lot of academic research, and I used to work in the briefly, but always been interested in human professional learning, and selfishly and selflessly. (laughs) And I I know from that literature that people are actually incredibly effective at self-assessment. They do lie a little bit, right? Like they'll lie by, I'll call it one shade of gray. So if they performed about the same, they might say somewhat better, right? So they lie by one shade of gray, but they tend to not lie by two shades of gray. And they also tend not to lie at the extremes. So they're not going to say they're much better when they're not. So we took the people who said they were much better on that relative to their competitors in the last 12 months and compared them to a grouping of much worse, somewhat worse, or about the same. We skipped somewhat better because that is a fuzzy zone to me. It's like net promoter score, right? I think you take the nines and tens and you subtract the zeros through sixes, but you ignore the sevens and eights. So somewhat better is kind of like a seven or an eight on a net promoter score. I will say when I shared that with a few people, especially internally, and I work with people who are as quant as I am, and they said, ah, I don't know about that. It's not good enough for me. So, so we did a little extra work where a lot of these companies were companies that were inside the Insight portfolio. So we actually knew their performance. Mm. And we looked at those who called themselves top performers relative to the ones who did not. And it turned out that on pretty much every key measure, those who did rate themselves top performers were in fact twice as good on a bunch of SaaS metrics. So for instance, enterprise value growth or ARR year over year growth, right? So things like that, that are objective, not subject to performance measures. There's a strong correlation between that self-rating. Driven by this goal of separating out practices from best practices, Jeremy built a sample set of his own to do just that. He sent out his revenue maturity assessment to 122 companies. The assessment, by the way, only took about 10 to 12 minutes to fill out, and he wanted companies to be able to fill it out without having to look anything up. And of course, being the analytical guy that he is, he had some of his own internal checks and balances at Insight Partners to objectively validate the subjective answers that the companies gave about themselves. So when all of his data collection was complete, the real question is, what did he learn? Yeah, so I guess a couple things. One is definitely if you you obviously have a ton of listeners who are in the RevOps world. So if, if you are a RevOps leader, again, like DM me on LinkedIn, I will send you the assessment. And this assessment actually, after you complete it within five or 10 seconds, will send you back an analysis of where you stand relative to the rest of everyone who's ever responded up to that point. It's dynamic, right? So every new data point feeds the the Borg, the brain that sits in there. So it'll send that back to you. It will also tell you the top five areas where you have the biggest gaps relative to those who are best practice. So it actually gives you a punch list effectively of where you should concentrate. So there's a bunch of summary stuff in there. And then we can slice and dice that further and further. But at the end of the day, what I was looking at was where are the biggest gaps like of the top performers minus the the lower performers, where's the biggest performance gap on each one of those practices? And again, correlation, not causation, but I would reason that where top performers are over-indexing on something like whatever rules of engagement for partner channel conflict, where they're over-indexing on something relative to the lower performers, there's something there, right? There's a glimmer. I don't know if it's 100%. I can't say that it's causation, right? 
but there's a glimmer there. And it means as a RevOps leader, you should direct your attention to that particular practice. And you may presume that it's best practice. There are some areas we could talk about some of these where there is no gap, or even the gap is negative, right? Like the lower performers over index on a particular practice. Mm. To me, I, I don't actually think of those as worst practice. I'm assuming that's a term. I don't actually think of those as worst practice. I think of them as at least in the context of this data set, right, with all those qualifiers, I think of those as it's just not something that's important as a performance differentiator, or it's not correlated with performance differentiation. So that could be because everybody is already doing them. So for instance, on the comp part of the assessment, most people have a 50-50 comp plan, right? Like that was one of the questions that we asked. So there is no gap between high performers and, and low performers. If we found something different, we would dig in there. But that's an example of where, yeah, you've got the zero difference means that might still be a best practice. It's just everyone's doing it and there's no gap. This is important to stop and fully grasp before moving any further. What Jeremy found is that some practices are essentially foundational and don't really have an impact as a performance differentiator. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do them. It just might mean everyone does them and they're the status quo. While other practices, the best practices, are what actually separate the top performers from the lower performers. Jeremy mentioned that he found nine different categories of practices. And while we're not going to hit every single one in this episode, I wanted to focus on those practices where he did see a disparity in performance, in outcomes. And one big one that I know made Jeremy's list was hiring and talent management. From my own experience, this is a type of work that is incredibly hard to do well. So perhaps there's a best practice to make that work just the slightest bit easier. The number one thing that differentiates the top performers from the lower performers in in hiring and talent management is the following practice that now we can presume to be best practice. Recruiting is a proactive, scalable process that ensures that roles are quickly filled. And like the anecdote there is a longtime friend, his name is Ralph Flamini, I met him when I worked at Gartner. I worked there for 16 years and we overlapped for, could have been, I don't know, five or 10 years. And we've stayed fast friends since then. He's you know since worked for Oracle, Fortinet, and, and other companies. And he's an enterprise sales leader. And, and I said to him, you know, we were talking about talent one day and I said, if you do one thing differently, what do you do? And he said, he, throughout his career as a sales leader, has basically hired a head of attrition. So he would rather have a little excess sales capacity because he knows there's going to be some loss, voluntary or involuntary, so that his philosophy is basically never have an open territory. That's one of the worst things you can do. So that to me is a great example of like translating this particular best practice into something super specific. And we're right now in a, we've shifted from growth at all costs, right? To efficient growth, or I forget what Nick Meta over at Gainsight calls it, right? But everyone's sort of talking about efficient growth. So it's a little bit heretical to say you should have a little excess excess sales capacity right now. But I mean, especially where you have a very long ramp time, right? Like context matters. So in my friend leads enterprise sales teams that often do million dollar plus deals, it takes 12 months realistically, right? To ramp a new hire into some of these businesses. So you really need to be sure that you don't leave these territories open. So that's one. There's others in there like our hiring plan for sellers and sales support roles ensures we have ramp capacity to meet our financial goals. So that's basically capacity planning. A lot of our RevOps peers are in annual planning mode right now. And 
how critical that is to make sure that you have these. And, and I'll say this also from kind of personal experience during my time at SalesLoft, we were worried we were going to miss plan at one point a few years back. And our biggest challenge was we didn't actually, we couldn't hire fast enough. We didn't have enough capacity. We didn't have a good capacity plan. And we hired this brilliant recruiter. Her name is Carly Jones. I mention her all the time because if I think of single people who added some of the most value to the company, companies that I've worked for, she's hands down one of those people. And she came through and she just broke through that. She aligned the capacity plan with the finance team and, and sales and revenue operations. And then she built an organization that was just world-class at recruiting to make sure you meet your, your capacity plans. So that is another one. I can go on, but those are like two of the top ones where yeah. there are big gaps. The one where there isn't, and this is a good example of just kind of the flip side, right, is the lowest one where there's almost no gap is we have a programmatic approach to onboarding new talent and a documented enablement plan to help them scale up quickly. Huh. So everyone tells you like, do that, right? So that one, I'm not saying it's not a best practice, but there's just no gap between the top performers and the low performing companies on that one. Do you think that that's because either some of those programs aren't effective or does that fall into the category we talked about earlier of like, look, you just got to do this, right? Everyone's got to do it. And so because everyone does it, there's no difference. <laughs> I think in this case, right, the sample is it tends to be smaller companies because our portfolio is distributed from whatever zero to hundreds of millions. But, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of it's concentrated in the middle of that range. And I generally think that people are not great at enablement, right? Most smaller companies kind of suck, frankly, at enablement. They may or may not have people. The enablement is best efforts by managers or maybe somebody in product marketing right, is doing double duty as onesie twosies of, of folks are hired in. So a part of this, I do think is, you know, is the sample that folks, you know, I think they're generally not great at it. So it could be that if you found, if we had a few more bigger companies, you know, with much more mature enablement functions, but it might also be that onboarding is usually a one to three week kind of deal. And you drink from a fire hose for three weeks and all the academic studies out there, independent of sales training, but all the academic studies out there that say when you just have a burst of training, that's not super effective. The retention is really low. From my experience in the jobs I've done, but also as I've watched account executives, I'm a fraud, by the way. I was never an AE. <laughs> I won't tell anybody. Yeah, I sold baseball cards and when I was a kid, I sold mangoes. Like I was always hustling, but I, I never carried a B2B sales bag. So I'm like a money ball person, but have never actually played <laughs> baseball. Anyway, yeah, in this respect, you know, on the enablement thing, people know that the sort of quick burst thing doesn't work. And most of the training is on the job, right? Like mm. if you have a great manager who's coaching you and giving you feedback and helping you to know, maybe you shadow them at first and then they step to the background and and give you feedback either by directly being on certain calls or following up on your conversation intelligence kinds of recordings and so forth, correcting you on entry and exit criteria on progression through the sales process and so forth. Like that on the job training, I think is far more powerful than, again, heretical thing, I guess to say, but I think it's far more powerful than the quick burst kind of stuff that people get in onboarding. It makes total sense that ongoing ever-present enablement would make it into the best practice bucket. My biggest takeaway from all of Jeremy's lessons around hiring and talent management is that being proactive is a prerequisite for success. Think about it. Capacity planning, recruiting, performance management, enablement. If you're trying to fly by the seat of your pants in any of those areas, you're going to be met with outcomes that match your preparation. 
At this point, I am super intrigued by these small nuances that separate the practices of the top performers from the lower performers. So let's get into a truly numbers-driven category in Jeremy's maturity assessment, pipeline and forecasting. I mean, no surprise here. I don't think this is rocket science, but the, the top two things, I'll just read what appear to be best practices. So we have a large enough pipeline to achieve bookings goals in each period, given sales cycles and win rates. Is that cause or effect? You could argue both ways. But if you think about that, it's like maniacal dedication to pipeline. And then I think the second one is the one that is the input to the first one, which is we monitor and report on pipeline created per seller on a frequent, for example, weekly basis. And if I look at there's one of the one of the cool things about this new job I have is, you know, I get to look across, we have 500 portfolio companies. So I get to look across tremendous amount of data and company performance. And the number one kind of success slash failure fact is this one, from what I can tell. It's basically, am I from leadership down to first line managers holding reps accountable to pipeline production? And somebody had a counter argument on this, which is, okay, if you just demand more pipeline, what do you get? You get a bunch of crappy opportunities. So yes, you need to control for that, right? I think it is the pairing of making sure that pipeline gets created, but then also inspecting that pipeline to make sure that it's quality and qualified pipeline, meeting the exit criteria, meeting the the standards of your persona and ICP and and all that. But as I said to the person that I was talking to, it's like, if you don't knock on the door, you're not going to sell any Girl Scout cookies, right? So you got to at least, you got to knock on the door, right? So, and, and, and the door knock here is, is making sure that opportunities get injected into the top of the pipeline. So the ops person in me can't help but like want to open up that a little bit more and, and, and dig in a little bit deeper. So I've probably spent more time in a room arguing about pipeline attribution and who sourced this and whose job like than I would care to admit, right? Like just too much time over the years. And so I'm curious, like completely agree with both mm -hmm. of those statements and the fact that one leads to the other. In that maniacal focus about that pipeline created per seller, did you find or learn anything or, or from anecdotal from within the portfolio company about what does that look like for new business versus existing customers? Or what does that look like for a rep versus their SDR or a marketing support? Like that's where I feel like the rubber hits yeah. the road. And that's also where like, again, you can get stuck in like finger pointing or you can say, look, we're all responsible here. And so I'm just curious what you found. I love that. And there's so much to unpack. And if, if people, if we were video cast or whatever it would be called, they'd, they'd see me smiling. And I'm smiling because one thing absolutely that I've seen successful, unsuccessful companies is that they are separating their new logo and their expansion pipeline. That's an absolute, you know, I, I will say it anecdotally, right? I'll say it with conviction, but it's an absolute best practice. And I see far too many companies who aggregate the pipeline. Almost everybody does. In fact, it's rare to see that separated. It's very rare to see that they're to be separate targets, sometimes for the entire company, like they just mm -hmm. don't think that way. And then certainly down to the manager or rep level, that's very rare to see the separation. And it's not even that the, you have to give the rep necessarily that explicit target, although there are some benefits to doing that, but to at least know what, what your targets are. And the reason this becomes a problem is the following, right? I'll see a portfolio company that has whatever, 140% NRR, right? They're just raging net retention growth. And that's masking the fact that they're not acquiring enough new logos. But the problem with even 140% NRR is that that's cohort-based. 
And as companies mature as customers, right, when they're in their third, fourth, fifth year, they're probably no longer growing at some extreme rate. And if you don't acquire enough new logos, then you hit a growth problem and you start mm-hmm. to miss. And then it's it takes a long time, right, to recharge the new logo thing when everybody's focused on reps in most cases will naturally focus on on expansion. There are some company cultures and even country cultures where the culture is like whatever chess banging over acquiring new logos and there's a pride in doing that. But mostly you go fish where it's easy to fish. Sure. Probably so does. yeah, that's one thing I would unpack. I, I think the other like sub best practice that is within what you were saying was the best companies this relates to attribution. The best companies are extremely thoughtful about sourcing pipeline. And I'm going to distinguish sourcing pipeline from attribution, right? It's like they have a waterfall that they say, for a given rep in a given segment, I know that a certain percent is going to be whatever product generated. I know a certain percent is going to be demo request inbound driven by demand gen via paid sources. I know a certain percent is going to be outbound. I know a certain percent is going to be CSQLs, like whatever, right? Whatever mm-hmm. the sources are. They have a, you know, targets, waterfall target effectively to build up where those leads will become generated by. I separate this from attribution simply because I ran at attribution as a CMO and I ran at attribution as a head of RevOps. And it's, imp- it's basically impossible, right? Like, <laughs> I think you just choose something. You choose either first touch or last touch. I kind of like first touch a little better, but you could probably argue me into the other one. What I did try to do because I'm a big effing propeller head is I once tried to build, you know, like a statistical model using logistic regression, you know, to separate all the factors in attribution. And that was before there were tools, right, to do that. Mm -hmm. But even those tools, the data is just not good enough to do proper attribution. And I also just think nothing good comes of it. It's like I learned a good lesson from one of my bosses. I'd done a, like a massive retention analysis to figure out what factors drove retention for the company so we could prioritize our effort. This dude, he's one of the smartest people, if not the smartest person I've ever met. He did the work that led his professor to win the Nobel Prize in Bose-Einstein condensates, MIT physics, PhD, like just Whoa. ragingly brilliant. And he sort of sat back in his chair and he said, you didn't need to do all that work because we have enough capacity in customer success to touch every customer with whatever was needed. Mm. So there was no need to actually prioritize the accounts. So anyway, this is my point of going back to attribution. It's even if you were able to do it, it's probably unnecessary, but definitely the waterfall contribution of pipeline by source is incredibly important because that helps you with budgeting and focus. I particularly appreciate when I talk to people like Jeremy who have both been there, done that as operators, and they're also just plain realistic when it comes to the application of theory to practice in a business. People like this and people not like this are instantly recognizable. Jeremy is trying to teach us. The best practice is we monitor and report on pipeline created per seller on a frequent basis. But how you break that best practice down, how you think about what contributes to that monitoring and that frequency, those are going to be imperfect. You can solve for that imperfection, however, by breaking the pipeline problem down into pieces that you can understand and then go after them. Which brings us to one final category from Jeremy's best practices survey that I wanted to explore, sales process. And Jeremy told me that there's a natural bridge between our pipeline and forecasting best practices and those around sales processes and operating rhythms. 
there's a great actually bridge between this pipeline and forecast category and the sales process. And, and the bridge is there's a question that could have fit in either one of them. And I wasn't exactly sure where to put it. And I put it in one category, but it's we have an operating rhythm in place to help advance deals this period and next period that engages all levels of sales leadership. I'm a student of CROs and I try to figure out, okay, what is the play that I've seen CROs when they come into companies run most often? And this is like one of the plays that I have seen consistently, which is they come in and usually there's very poor deal inspection, right? Usually there's very poor like looking at the forecast performance QBRs, right? They come in and they put all that in place and that accelerates business. I've seen it happen over and over and over again. So like that one totally makes sense to me. In the sales process category, the number one biggest gap area, we can come back to that kind of operating rhythm. But the number one thing is we follow a data-driven approach to optimizing our sales process that considers activity, effectiveness, and results. And I think all these things are tied together a bit, right? Is you've got that operating rhythm, but then you're also ensuring tying back to our waterfall of source for pipeline build, right? Is like Jason Jordan and Michelle Vazana cracking the sales management code. Definitely one of my favorite. It's one of my two favorite sales management books. The other one is actually my favorite favorite is Sales Manager Survival Guide by I think David Brock wrote that one. It's a little academic, but anyway, getting back to Jason and Michelle, they're all about activity, right? They're all about activity because if you just say more pipeline, that doesn't help. If you just say more worse yet is like more wins, that doesn't help. It's doing the right activity effectively that matters. And those things can be measured. So I'll give you an anecdote. When I was at SalesLoft, and I'm trying to say not say that too often, right? It, it get repetitive. It's <laughs> But the, you know, that was the company did well. So I guess some of those things are hopefully your best practice. Good role model. I was running the uh, first job I had there was running the sales development team. And we had about 60 SDRs, so good amount of data. And I did this chart and it was a two by two. And on one axis was activity. And on the other axis was a measure of effectiveness. What it was, was the number of activities per op generated. And mm-hmm. I plotted each rep each month on that so I could sort of see the distribution And the ideal is you got a person with high activity and what you want is low activities per op. That means they're super effective. So our most effective SDRs would be like between 80 and 100 activities per op. It doesn't mean you're hitting one person, right? 80 times. It means you're hitting 10 people eight times, right? So those were our top performers. And then newbies, like they could easily be doing 300 or 400 activities per op when they were brand new because they right? They just kind of didn't have the rhythm. And in the early days, we we weren't as disciplined at centralizing the messaging that was being used and and so forth, and how we directed people to personalize and what offers they they provided, right? So we tuned that up over time. But anyway, that activity and effectiveness drives results thing. No surprise to me that that popped out as the number one sales process discipline. And I'm glad you gave that example on the effectiveness front, because I was going to ask something similar. And, And we actually do something very similar to that at Drift when we think about when we launch new sales plays, right? Or the, you know, the sequences or the messaging that goes with that, right? And basically measuring same thing, like the number of touch points to yield and being able to say, oh my gosh, like this new play, it's 10 touches instead of 80. Like, holy cow, like we need to continue to use this. And then, you know, that will wane over time. But I'm curious, like when you think about that entire bucket of effectiveness, if I take a step back, is that 
basically conversion rates? Is that how I should think about effectiveness as kind of like the best gauge there? Or are there other ways you think about effectiveness? I mean, effectiveness to me is the mathematical equation that bridges activity and results, right? So it could be a lot of different things. But yeah, it it is the conversion of activity to results. To me, where I thought you were going to go was like, how do you juice effectiveness, right? Mm. And it gets back to our enablement conversation earlier. It's like consistent feedback from an expert, from the manager. It also could be affected by things that are out of the rep's control, right? Product, brand. Another thing that I've done in the past is I forget if I who I I think I stole this from Drift, actually. Funny enough, you guys used to have a and maybe you still do, you had like a inbound response benchmark or some kind of benchmark thing sure. that you yeah. that you guys like speed was that to lead was? type thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys had this awesome benchmark. It was probably you probably created it years back. I think. <laughs> I bet. So I stole that idea and I said, okay, well, what are some things that we could do to basically give value when we're prospecting that are not giving away the product, right? And this is PPL, pre-PLG days, right? But what are some things that, that you could do? And we created things like a, a find business email website or little little applet or whatever website, mm-hmm. I guess, a, a cadence builder, an email subject line grader, right? Like all these kind of grader types of things. I, I stole partly from Drift. I stole partly from HubSpot, I guess. Had you know they because they had a I'm sure awesome marketing grader. Yeah, <laughs> everyone stole from them, right? Like yeah. So anyway, so that way when people are prospecting, they can truly give value and not just whatever. Hey, I was intrigued by your profile on LinkedIn. Blah 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 blah. Do you want a meeting? Right. It's how do you actually add value during that sequence slash cadence, depending on your your word of choice of touches. And obviously, you're an incredibly data driven person, right? And so this best practice of having a data-driven sales team that uses activity, effectiveness, and results as your kind of core competencies, like suits you very well. I'm curious, is there a version of that that becomes like a little bit a bridge too far within some of these companies where you're finding it to be the best practice? Because what I get nervous about is like, okay, now you're going to have slice and dice this 17 different ways where like this activity or this effectiveness, and then all of a sudden, you're so far gone that you yeah. can't actually find the main thing, which I think comes back to just the focus or the question you're trying to answer. But like, is there a world inside of this best practices where it's like, okay, you have to measure this stuff, but you also need to be incredibly deliberate about what you choose to measure? Yeah, I'll go in with two tracks of answers. One is there is a world, right, where you need extreme data. And the PLG world, I think, fits that category because you need to think about unique qualified visitors, conversion rates, blah, 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 retention of free users, and so on. Like that world is becoming more data driven, even than the stuff that we've been talking about. At the other end of the spectrum, I was down at one of our portfolio companies in DC, and they sell into the military and federal civilian space. Their minimum contract is like a million dollars, and they, you know, they'll do $10 million contracts. Mm. And you know those $10 million contracts might last five or 10 years, right? So in that case, there just isn't enough. It's not a volume business, right? It's not a PL. You don't sell a $10 million deal to the army with activity, right? Like it just doesn't work that way. So there's those two ends of those spectrums. The other thing that I was thinking about when you were saying that was it just sort of made me think about Three Mile Island nuclear meltdown, right? There's pictures of the control room and there's like tons and tons of lights and switches and knobs and whatever. And there was like one light in one part that was telling what the problem was, but it was either misinterpreted or 
yeah, it was ultimately found but then misinterpreted, right? So I have talked to this sort of next generation of startups who are working on we had this first wave of analytics, which is I'm going to put everything in Looker or Tableau or whatever, right? Like I'm going to put stuff in there. And that stuff is still incredibly valuable. And then there's a new wave of people who, or the second wave, I guess, of people who would say, okay, we know in sales that there are this set of KPIs, this set of metrics, especially in SaaS, for example, like there's this set of metrics that that matter. And they're generally like common. There's whatever of them. I mean, they're in the tens, if not, you know, maybe order of magnitude 100, but not extreme. But it's still too much to look at mm-hmm. and too much to monitor. And once you start to slice that by month, by quarter, by rep, by this, by that, it becomes too much. The third wave that I've been seeing now is, okay, we know there's all these metrics. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to basically hide all that from you. And I'm just going to proactively alert you when something is out of range. And I think that to me is the answer. Is, is this third wave where you kind of load it with, well, I guess what they would love to do is you just connect it to your your system basically, yeah. right? And then the almost like credit card fraud because the technology has existed for a long time. It just sort of tells you when things are out of line and alerts you that, hey, possible fraud detected, but fraud detected is not fraud. It's like ops are out of whack or pipelines out of whack yeah. for this rep in this region, blah, 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 right? So I, I think that that's the answer because yeah, it doesn't take much on a dashboard to completely overwhelm even an analytical person. Humans just can't process that volume and variety of information. So you don't know where to look. But the thing is, is the signal is there, but it just needs to be detected and brought to the front. Before we go, at the end of each show, we're going to ask each guest the same lightning round of questions. Ready? Here we go. Best book you've read in the last six months? Oh, yeah, I can go this right away. I read I read like a book a week. Sales wow. book, The Jolt Effect, which was just released, Matt Dixon and the, the Challenger people, really solid. The takeaway there is sales kind of has two phases. First phase is creating value, and the second phase is reducing perceived risk. All right. I'll have to add that one to the list. Favorite part about working in ops? Definitely the math, the intellectual problem solving and challenge. Flip side, least favorite part about working in ops? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a slightly different answer, which is I loved working in ops because I loved like the complexity of the implementation that you might come up with an idea. And when you actually went to implement it, that's where the you know what hits the road and dealing with the change management and people stuff. Yeah. I will say I'm going to tweak your question, which is that's the thing I miss the most in the job I'm doing now, right? Is like I'm, I provide a lot of advice, but I don't get to deal with that challenge, that intellectual challenge of actually implementing something. That's super interesting. You miss the hard stuff. Yeah, I miss the hard. I miss the people challenge and behavioral, you know, it's like a version of behavioral economics on how do you make this stuff happen. It's a huge, huge part of the job. Someone who impacted you getting to the job you have today. Oh, wow. Every manager I ever had. But most importantly, yeah, I would say a manager that I had a Gartner, his name was Nir Polanski. So I was a analyst at Gartner for about eight years. And then I moved into the central strategy part of the organization. And he was a former McKinsey consultant. And he was giving me so much feedback. I had never had a boss who gave me so much feedback. And I actually got mad at him in the first week. I'm like, just let me do my job. And I had a wake up call. He's like, hey, I should have explained what I'm doing, which is if I teach you everything I know, then I near become expendable, which means I near can get promoted and you can too. So 
young Padawan, please, it's time to listen to me. And I said, yes, yes, Jedi Master, I will now listen to you. That's phenomenal advice and very, very true. All right, now your turn. One piece of advice from you for people who want to have your job someday. Be a sales nerd, right? It's up to people to judge this, but I may or may not come off as a, you know, someone who has a depth of knowledge in, in revenue operations. I'm nearing 50 and I did not do this for 30 years. Like I've been doing this for, I don't know, eight years or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I've read every imaginable book. I read them to this day. I listen to podcasts galore. I talk to people, peers, colleagues all the time. So it's just be an incredible sales nerd. If, if you want my job, you can have it. Thanks so much to Jeremy for joining us on this week's episode of Operations. If you liked what you heard, make sure you're subscribed to our show. A new episode comes out every other Friday. Also, if you learned something from Jeremy or from any of our episodes, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps people find the show. Six star reviews only. All right, that's going to do it for me. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.